Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. You know, what we try to do here at Let's Be Blunt is to make sure we bring you the most up-to-date information that we could possibly bring you in the world of cannabis and hemp. So that for those of you out there who are trying to make choices as you navigate the daunting space of cannabis in your individual communities, you know, you can have enough information to literally walk in and make really good choices for you and your family if that's what you choose to do. And I know I've talked about it once, but I'm going to, I, I got to keep remember, reminding myself to bring this up over and over again. You know, recently, you know, Normal published a book called Cl Clinical Applications for Cannabis and Cannabinoids. And this is it right here. If you haven't seen it before, take a look at it, go up online and get this book because it dispels a lot of the myths around cannabis but it also will give you some information about recent breakthroughs. I don't know if a lot of you know this, but, you know, in the last year, you know, every time you hear a congressman or a senator in this country talk about, you know, effective or new, you know, access laws to cannabis, they all say, well, we need to do the proper amount of research. It needs to be the proper amount of research. Stop the stupid because the research has been done, folks. In the last year alone, even through COVID, over 3,500 peer-reviewed published documents have been released about cannabinoids, cannabinoids and cannabis and their efficaciousness when it comes to, you know, affecting a myriad of illnesses. And those illnesses range from everything from, you know, uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease down to Tourette's syndrome and more. So... The research is out there, and if you look at it overall, there's probably around 30,000, hear me, 30,000 published peer-reviewed studies on cannabis, which makes it even more study than bare aspirin or aspirin itself. So, you know, uh, there's more studies that have been done and completed in the last year on cannabis than have been done on alcohol. Yet we still have politicians saying, well, we need to have the research. We need every No, they're just playing a silly little game because they won't even read the research. As a matter of fact, you know, we don't even teach the research at medical hospitals across the country. You know, we have doctors who go through multiple years of education and sign a Hippocratic oath that says that they will do no harm. And they do harm by not studying and following up with continuing medical education to find out the information that's been released recently. And it's not as recently, but you know, in the last 30 years about the fact that we all have within us this endogenous sympathetic kind of nervous system, I'll call it that way, which is called the endocannabinoid system, which is a system inside of all mammals that was there, put there by nature that allows us to formulate and form our own cannabinoids. And about if you never touched cannabis in your life, you have cannabinoids in your body. Two of them in particular are something called anandamide and the other one's called 2-AG, which we now know are there. And this is by scientific research has been established and has been now recognized and has been validated that the endocannabinoid system is what's responsible in our body for our cellular homeostasis, which means it's responsible for that Goldilocks zone of our cells. In the last couple of weeks, three weeks ago, uh, it was all over the news and it kind of made the news, especially in the cannabis circles, that a study that was done a year before, now two years ago, back when COVID first began, 
scientists around the world, Israel, all over the world, started looking at cannabinoids and seeing if they could affect this thing that we call the COVID virus or the SARS virus. And lo and behold, now what we found out is that two of the minor cannabinoids and possibly others that we haven't been able to finish with research with yet, but particularly CBDA and CBGA seem to affect the spike protein on the outer layer of the COVID virus, which stops that virus from entering our cells. Interesting. This has been known now for over a year and a half, yet you don't hear that on the news. You don't see that on CNN. You don't hear that on that, on Fox News. You don't hear that on you know One American News. You don't hear that anywhere. Why? Because the pharmaceutical industry's got this in a lock, my friends. Let's understand this. You know, if tomorrow you were told, now I remember there were some really false things that came out when COVID first hit. You know, there was that hydrochloroquine, and there's all these other. You know, some, some clown that's up on the internet now talking about drinking your own urine. I mean, come on now. About being a cure for cannabis. I know there's a lot of fake information out there. However, this is scientific research that was done at the University of Oregon that is now proven through lab testing that cannabinoids do have an effect on the ability of that virus from entering our cells. Cannabinoids have an effect on various forms of cancer and things like blocking the ability for cancer cells to actually draw a blood supply. So we also know that there's a neuroprotective nature of cannabinoids that seems to help and, and was reported by our own government as far back as 1999 and validated in 2002 when the US government gave themselves their own patent on cannabinoids. So for those of you out there who don't think that there's been enough research, I just I told you, the U.S. government filed and gave itself a patent back in 2001, 2002 uh, on cannabinoids having effect and a neuroprotective capability. Is that amazing? So it's not like this is something we didn't know. We've known this for quite a while. And that's part of the reason why I'm so excited to have my guest on that I have on today, because my guest today was working as a pediatric nurse when she suffered a traumatic brain injury. And after years of suffering and, uh, and many traditional medications that brought no relief and a multitude of side effects, she decided to try medical cannabis. And that day was a turning point in her life. And she has been a relentless cannabis advocate and educator ever since. Nikki Lawley, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Montel, every single thing you just said in your opening is 100% factual and true. Mm. I am so grateful to have people like you and your voice and someone that has your incredible reach and knowledge um, actually communicate something so true, accurate, and that makes so much sense. And you broke it down so simply that other people can understand that. Um, my story is kind of unique, but not really. Uh, every single day, I just was doing my job as a pediatric nurse, just like every other day. And a child did not want a vaccine. Um, it was his school booster shot, and he needed to have his Tdap. And 
this child was not having any part of it. And so this was not something new. This was not something that I wasn't used to for 20 years. I've been a nurse. So knowing, you know, you're going to have to restrain children. That's just part of the job. And this child caught me completely off guard and my life changed in one second. Um, well, you know, wait, wait, before, you, before you go into detail about that, and I'm going to give you some information that, uh, when we start talking about what happened to you, I want you to take us back a little bit before that. Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Let's talk about you. I want to know who you are first. Sure. Um, my name is Nikki Lawley and I am from Buffalo, New York. I actually grew up in Buffalo, went to uh, middle school and high school in Fort Myers, Florida. Um, I got married and had children, got divorced, came back to Buffalo while I was living in Florida. Um, I met the guy of your dreams and it wasn't so dreamy. And mm -hmm. so I ended up back in the cold. Um, everyone said, why would you ever leave Florida? It was a very easy decision for me. <laughs> I'm, with you. I'm with you. So now you, 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 you grew up in Buffalo, got it. Were you educated in Buffalo, got your degree? I, I, know. I got my nursing degree in Buffalo. Um, when I was in Fort Myers and got, had children, I then started working as a medical assistant um, for a pedi pediatrician. When I came to New York, I couldn't practice the same way I had in Florida because in Florida, you practice under the physician's license, whereas in New York, you actually have to be a licensed professional. So when I came back to Buffalo, I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? You know, I'm back here. And so I went to school here and got my um, LPN degree and immediately started working in uh, pediatrics again. And what did, what did you work in before you started being a nurse's assistant in Florida? I'm sure you graduated from high school. What did you do for the first few years before you met that man in your dreams? I was a uh, retail pet sales person. I ran three different pet stores. Um, after I came back to Buffalo and after I graduated nursing school, I actually wanted to be a pharmaceutical sales rep. And so they said, you don't have any outside sales experience. We love your background. We love that you're smart and graduated nursing school, but you need to have some outside sales background. We don't care what you do. And we would love to um, sell anything and then come back to us in a couple of years. Well, I ended up getting a job selling HVAC filters and I loved it. <laughs> yeah. um, I would crawl around air handlers and really get down and dirty and learn all about their HVAC system. And what's crazy is 20 years later, if I would have still been in filtration, <laughs> what mm. a different trajectory my life would have been. Absolutely. Especially <laughs> because they're, they're booming all over America right now with buildings and schools trying to you know, make sure they have the proper filtration in there to see if they can stem the tide of COVID, right? Correct. Correct. And I actually had figured this out back 20 years ago. I actually had created a filter that in schools, they have like unit ventilators. They're the, you know, like in hotel rooms, they're like a single unit. Well, I it was insisting we should create a product that can withstand the um, limited airflow in those things, but trap the particles because kids you know, before COVID, I mean, we had flu. Yeah, <laughs> and as soon as it's recirculated, it just keeps recirculating. So as soon as COVID came out, I was like, why are we not addressing 
indoor air quality, like this is where it continues to spread. If you've noticed, every time we go into these um, major weather changes, either it be coolness or heatness, that's when the COVID cases spike. Why? Because in a little restaurant, in a little facility, they just don't simply have enough air changes to move the virus around. So wow. basically, you know, everybody's just breathing the same air. Um, anyway, side note there, sorry. But, <laughs> but I loved what I did. I actually became a woman-owned business owner and was very accomplished. And then uh, the circumstances happened and the economy changed and construction projects weren't happening anymore. So I actually got, um, I closed my business and ended up going to casino dealing school. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So for seven years, I worked as a casino dealer in addition to going back to nursing and being a pediatric nurse. Mm -hmm. So I actually worked 72 hours a week um, for seven years. Uh, I'm like, I'm a real doer and mover kind of person always. That was just me. I started working at 15, you know, as soon as you could work, you know, um, my family wasn't wealthy, but they provided for us, you know, and, you know, mm -hmm. I never wanted anything. I'm an only child. Um, I have two children. Uh, they're 30 and 32 now. Um, what happened when now I think we're probably at the injury point where I can well, share. Oh, go ahead. Even before you jump in the injury point, I want to know now during that period of time, you had a pretty, you know, extensive and, and broad view of life, you know, from nursing to HVAC to dealing, being around people. Were you ever introduced to cannabis at this point in your life? So I actually got Lyme disease back in 99 and someone offered me cannabis because I was having excruciating headaches. And lo and behold, I mean, I hated smoking. The thought of smoke and cigarettes, I mean, I grew up around it. It just made me sick. And mm -hmm. so the thought of actually smoking a joint, and this was like in 99. So Montel, as you're well aware, like it was like 60s pot. It wasn't the same cannabis that's there now. So I tried the joint and I mean, my headache improved. But again, I didn't think of it as medicine so much. I thought of it, well, I'm just more relaxed. You know, I never, I mean, I grew up in the 80s era, just say no, your brain on drugs, the fried egg. Um, so having, you know, going in the corner and getting, you know, high, quote, mm -hmm. um, was something I was not accustomed to. And I definitely, I became a casual user at that point. Um, yeah. But but casual user in a sense, I, I often, uh, here, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, I literally stopped using and consuming cannabis for, you know, almost 22 years, the period of time that my service career had launched. But then when I started my talk show, I remember this is back in, you know, 1991. Um, I literally back then I, I moved to California and I started gravitating to cannabis for, for me, it was because, you know, I just, I kept, I kept waking up with some weird feelings. I had some weird, you know, the hip problem. I had weird, I, I had always had restless leg syndrome um, or something close to that. And I kind of gravitated towards cannabis because it made me feel better in the morning than having, you know, two or three shots of some brown liquor. And 
didn't realize that, you know, and what a lot of people I think who gravitate to cannabis don't realize is that you're trying to address some underlying medical reason because it made you feel better than taking two aspirin or taking two Tylenol or taking two Advil or taking two whatevers and then, you know, or drinking. And so I think most people who make a choice of moving to cannabis do so because even if they don't think that it was for wellness reasons, they do so because that endocannabinoid system is singing, saying, you know, yo, hey, I got something that'll help you, stupid. I'm sorry, but that's what's going on subconsciously. And then, you know, the next thing you know, when I literally was diagnosed with MS, I made the conscious choice to move away from alcohol completely. And part of that was because, you know, um, in the information about some of the medication I was taking, was talking about the fact that, you know, alcohol could exacerbate the site reaction where I actually took a needle. And so, you know, I thought, you know, a couple of times I remember coming home after I had a couple of drinks and taking my shot and having a big boil, you know, where that spot was and then realizing that when I didn't drink, that didn't happen. So I got off the alcohol and then, you know, I was looking for something that would make me feel better. So I started using cannabis and then unbeknownst to me, as I started using it, it started feeling its effect and its effect on some of my symptoms from my ass. That's what made me actually go and pursue cannabis because I realized that there's something here. I don't know what it is. And back then, I didn't even realize that at the exact same time of my diagnosis that the government had already said that cannabis worked well for neurological disease and for ischemia and for, you know, uh, uh, neurological trauma. So I only say that to say, okay, so you were using a little bit, but this is before you were, before your major issue, right? A hundred percent. But- I used it enough that I hated drinking. I hated how drinking made me feel. Um, I was one of those loosey goosey drunks, you know, gets way too friendly. Um, And so that's not who I am either. And so one of the things I would do is occasionally when other people had cannabis, I would smoke it, but I had extreme paranoia of getting random drug tested at the casino. And if if I got randomed at the casino, then I would have to, it would go on my nursing record. And I mean, like, that's just not cool to be a nurse and have a marijuana uh, offense on there. So I carried around synthetic urine (laughs) in my breast to basically in case of a random drug test. I mean, I was that paranoid despite not being a regular consumer just because I didn't understand the endocannabinoid system. I didn't understand any of that. That stuff is not taught in nursing school, not even once. Um, So it was a whole journey for me. And if you would have told me your child was taking cannabis for seizures, I would have called child protective services. Sure. Sure. I mean, like that's my license on the line. Like you're an asshole. I mean, I'm sorry for saying it like that, but I mean, literally like in my mind at that time, I would have completely thought the parent was off the rocker. <laughs> like, well, yeah. And that was the attitude of the day back then across the board. And in some places it's still the attitude today, but now, so something happened to you. What year was this when you had your, your, is your, and I should say, you know, I recognize what you were probably going through. I had a, a child, four kids, and one of my kids is is just so extremely. She was, for some ri- ridiculous reasons, 
became so paranoid of needles that she literally even now in her late thirties is it's a traumatic experience to draw blood from this child, you know, or to have her go to the, to get a shot. She just literally has a meltdown, you know, almost like a meltdown that you think she's having a nervous breakdown. Um, so you, you had a child that came in to get a, a, a vaccination and my child would have been one of those that literally would have freaked out. So this child freaked out on you, right? Is that what happened? Totally. It happened uh, 10, 11, 2016. It was the day my life changed forever. Um, the last day I was able to practice nursing, the last day I was able to work in any kind of gainful employment. Um, the child didn't want this shot. He was not going to have it. I called in, you know, I was called in to assist another nurse and uh, it just hit me the wrong way. I was behind the kid holding him against the father and he tucked his chin and threw his head into my head. I bounced off a wall and back into his head. Wow. So it was basically a double impact injury, immediately left arm numbness, tingling, almost paralysis. But I was so angry. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe that just happened to me. And, the and at the moment, you didn't realize you had a TBI. Absolutely no clue. I was just pissed. Um, and the doctor came running in from next door and he's like, what was that? And the other nurse said, that was Nikki's head. And um, anyway, took us a second time. Every time the other nurse would go to give the kid a shot, he would like flap his arm like a duck. So all of my power and all of my strength was in those arms, holding them down against the father so that, you know, I could secure them. So she didn't get stuck with a needle. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. what we normally are afraid of. Um, definitely not what happened to me. I mean, I've been kicked, I've been punched, but this was absolutely no warning. And just like that. Um, how many days did it take for all of your symptoms to manifest? Well, right away, I was sent to urgent care. One of the physicians Take a, took a look at me and he's like, yeah, your eye doesn't look right. You've got a concussion. You got to go to urgent care. I'm like, what are they going to do? They're going to just tell me to go home and rest. What do we tell every patient to do? Go home and rest. You know, I mean, I wasn't even remotely worried that this was going to have lasting symptoms. And, you know, I honestly expected to be back to work the next day. It was not the case. Um, and I went to urgent care. They're like, yeah, you have a concussion. Um, but within a week, actually three days, I thought I had a brain bleed. I had the worst, most excruciating headache I've ever had. So my primary care physician sent me for MRIs and CT scans and they all came back normal. <laughs> and uh, so then there's nothing wrong with you. And that and it came back normal because at the time we couldn't actually see. I would bet now if you had a CAT scan or a PET scan or even, you know, an MRI, if that had happened this year, you know, I think doctors would have been able to detect some minor changes in your brain matter and, and some sprain swelling that would have let them know that, yes, in fact, you do have a pretty traumatic brain injury. I didn't lose consciousness. So the misconception of a brain injury is you have to lose consciousness. And that is absolutely not the case. All it right. turns out... Um, my neck got really screwed up. So in addition to the brain injury, my neck, I have cervical instability. And I went for a year to over 60 physicians, to over 70 drugs, to 
literally losing all hope in humanity and in life because I had no quality of life. And explain that. Tell me, your headaches were so bad, balance was off, what was going on? Explain that to people so they understand. Sure. Um, I couldn't count anymore. I shared with you I was a dealer. I had an absolute meltdown buying some liquor at the liquor store. My parents were coming in for the holidays and I gave the kid $80 and I grabbed a handful of change in my purse and I couldn't count 67 cents. And I started bawling and just like losing my shit. And this kid was just like, here, I can do it for you. And, but I mean, this is somebody who was a car dealer. And then um, just to follow up to that, we were playing rummy at home. I mean, everybody was trying to cheer me up, trying to, you know, make me engage because I was turning into this hermit, this shell, this, like, I didn't want to live. I didn't want to be there. And so my mom's like, oh, let's have the dealer deal the cards. Montel, I couldn't count out seven cards and six piles. I, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. That's when I realized I'm not getting better. <laughs> I'm right. like, this is cognitive. There's something in my brain. And so it was fighting that whole invisible injury kind of stigma. I mean, you understand with MS, sure. you're not, you know, maybe you're not using a cane. You're not, you know, people look at you like you're crazy because you have a, a handicapped parking sticker. If I fall on my head one more time on an icy parking lot, <laughs> I'm in really bad shape and I might not come out of it. I mean, my yeah. neck is that screwed up and I don't want to have a fusion because that just has its own host of issues. But right. my cognitive function was just absolutely horrific. I had no short-term memory. I had no um, ability to see past the pain. I was absolutely 400% helpless. And my husband basically became my caregiver four months after the injury. I was planning my, we, my husband thought it would be really nice to go to Las Vegas for vacation. Mm -hmm. What year was this? This is uh 2017 January. Gotcha. The injury was 11, 10, 11, 16. Okay. So we booked the trip and I didn't want to go at all. Um, Vegas has always been one of my most favorite places to go because being a dealer, being part of that whole scene, that's obviously a lifestyle that I really enjoyed. So I could not tell you how I did not want to go on this trip. I literally cried for days go leading up to it. I was like, I'm not going to be able to handle it. I won't be able to handle the people, the lights, the sounds. I just, I don't want to leave this house. And uh, we went three days. I'm in the room. I'm crying. I'm miserable. Don't even come outside to eat. Um, we got a room uh, overlooking the strip, which had its own loudness and I was literally looking over the edge and we were very low. We were like seven floors up and the pool was right there, three below. I'm like, well, this is not going to work at all. Um, contemplating jumping. And at that time, a mobile billboard came by. Get your medical marijuana card here in Nevada today. And immediately that image of Nancy Reagan and the just say no to drugs and your brain on drugs, the frying egg basically came to mind. That billboard came by a second time. 
my husband came back to the room because he literally had to distance himself from me. I mean, I was just a mess, Montel. And he came back and I said, oh, we can go fry my brain on drugs a little more and go get my medical marijuana card here in Nevada. And he's like, let's do it. He's like, you know, you've had pop before, you know, you've used it before. I'm like, it's not medicine. Like that's not going to help what's going on. And I mean, I almost fought him. We end up going to a dispensary, to a place to get the card. It was super easy. Um, but I was so overwhelmed. And I mean, I got gummies, I got chews, I got all kinds of products that go first past digestion. I didn't find any relief with those. I smoked a joint and I got out of that room. It was the first light at the of tiny glimmer of hope four months into the injury. I expected to be able to come home to New York and have the exact same experience. I expected, you know, New York has medical marijuana, just like Nevada. Montel, chronic pain was not on the schedule of approved conditions at that time. And so then I just, that hopeless came back again. That flood of new drugs came in because I'm so sad again. And, and that whole jockeying of, I have no hope again. So that's how I accumulated so many doctors and so many things. That second year, towards the end of it, I had some friends in Canada and they said, you said the pot really helped you. He said, come on over here and my wife, she'll get a card and you can stay with us and you can use this marijuana and make yourself feel better. And I'm like, dude, it's not that easy. I mean, this is like, you know, it's going to Canada. You won't be able to bring it home. Montel, I became a Canadian cannabis medical refugee. <laughs> literally for two and a half years up until COVID. Wow. Um, I would literally go to Canada and that's where I learned the very most about cannabis and how it's used and the research and the data and the experiences of other people. And I learned all about the Canadian producers and how they go to market and how the government runs their stores and how it's a true system and they have like apps that actually can track your use of what cannabis you're using. And then they actually have the certificates of analysis of what the terpenes are and the minor cannabinoids are and how to actually understand why this is working for you. I'll never forget my husband called and when I was in Canada and I was sounded normal. I was playing Scrabble Montel. Okay. I mean, I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but Sure. In the state I was in, it was a huge deal. Um, and he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, what do you mean what's wrong? I'm like, I'm playing Scrabble and everything's great. And he's like, you sound normal. Like the first time in a year he had heard me actually have some sync to my voice. I actually have some pep in my talk. And he was so excited. That like gave him hope. And then that started to give me hope because then I started tracking my use with this application. It was called Strain Print. And they're based out of Canada. And it's a really cool application that really helped understand what I was doing and why and how, why this was working for, you know, my chronic pain was a huge issue. My brain fog and brain cognition, the other huge issue and anxiety and depression. If I had like three things I could track 
of the efficacy of cannabis and how it improves those things. Those are my three things that I still suffer from today. I mean, I'm not cured with cannabis, but I am well with cannabis. Cannabis gave me hope when I had zero. But then here comes here comes COVID and right? Yes, a hundred percent. So then I had to learn what the legacy market was. <laughs> um, you know, it was not something that I was real comfortable doing. I mean, yeah, I have kids, but like, I don't want to get them in trouble, you know? Yeah. And I felt so self-conscious about talking to anybody about it, about, you know, I just felt like it was dirty. And then Montel, you know, one of your podcasts came up, the Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm like, well, I'm really blunt. So I want to listen to what Montel has to say. And uh, you made cannabis less dirty for me. You made it less taboo. And so then I started listening to other podcasts and listening to other people, and especially in Canada, going to different trade shows and learning about the industry and the different products and understanding, you know, New York state was so behind COVID hit, you know, now I'm forced with products. I've now don't have test results for, you know, it's like you spend money and you have no idea if it's going to work for you. Like none. I mean, for me personally, I have to smoke my medicine. Um, I don't have a gallbladder and I had weight loss surgery. So as a result, Cannabis, THC, CBD are all fat soluble. And so you need fat to be able to metabolize them. Basically, my stuff just bypasses. So that's why I have to smoke. But honestly, for me, smoking, I can totally control it. I can totally, I smoke just until I feel medicated. I stop when I don't need it. I don't get high. I get well. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know. What I mean, it, it, the the effects, especially when when it just seems as if it's it's one of these things that nature knew what it what you needed, and will give you what you need from this plant. You probably do have a little euphoria, but that euphoria translates into just being normal, right? Facts, facts. Um, I'm super passionate about it because if you would have seen the dark place I was in, you would understand this is not fake. This is real. And I want to do all I can to help remove the stigma because no one should have to go through what I did and be questioned and told that there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head and made to feel like you were absolutely crazy when I wasn't, I was injured. Well, you know, now now, has not the state of New York um, made some improvements in the last year or so, last two years? I know they, you know, originally were trying to limit the amount of THC that was in a product, but now they've taken those reins off or at least raised that level. Is that not? Chronic pain is now approved, um, but our products are absolutely overpriced and out of affordability range. I literally... I'm back to going to Canada now. (laughs) And I actually had a storage unit that helped my medical cannabis that I would just go get what I needed, go to my friends, bring it back what I didn't use. I mean, I, New York state now has flour up until six months ago, we didn't have flour. So now I've tried a couple of the products, but originally it was just ground flour. 
Montel for $95, there were stems, there was, you know, leaf matter in this ground up cannabis. And it was like, I can't justify this. And you don't get to smell it or see what it looks like before you purchase it. So you're at a complete disadvantage. So I relied on the illicit market, but then I discovered Nevada medical cannabis. Well, actually it's wreck, but I have gone back on vacation numerous times and gone to legal states and experienced now California, Massachusetts, Oregon. Nevada, yeah, right. you know, Oregon, and literally the difference in quality of products and affordability in products when a state goes to adult use it just totally changes for the patient's advantage. They have a wider variety of products. They have a wider availability of information. Now you now you've said about the, you know a pretty serious lobbying effort and trying to change some laws. How's that been going? I have um, really kind of backed off on the lobbying. I've been more focused on sharing the story and. What's happening now is lobbyists are reaching out to me and wanting me to come tell the story in front of larger audiences. And so I have not been as active in the political side of things as I once was. Um, initially, early before COVID, I was really on top of it, but I kind of backed off that. Not that I don't fully support it and everybody who does it, but my time has just become more efficiently spent advocating for patients. And what would you like to see? I mean, change when it comes to, you know, access in your community in New York and, you know, what do you, what do you think should, should happen over the course of the next couple of years? Honestly, um, I know what happens in historic situations with adult use kind of takes over the medical use of for patients. And I really hope that there is some, regulation of that, meaning right now we have pharmacists on site at every dispensary. I hope that doesn't go away. I hope that, you know, because a 55-year-old woman who's never used cannabis before doesn't want to get high. <laughs> She's coming in for a specific purpose, but she might be on blood thinners. She might have glaucoma. You know, a bud tender has no idea traditionally in a rec state, what to recommend for that patient. You know, they think she's, you know, in really bad pain. So they're going to think that she needs a heavy dominant, mercine, couch lock type product. And in reality, it's really going to make her miserable. And that's going to be a really negative first experience for her. Um, my husband is a perfect example of that. Uh, he does not do well with any kind of cannabis. He does not do well with um, anything that is smoked, inhaled, or anything. So he just, he sticks with some CBD tincture. That's about it for him. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't agree with him. And that can happen. You know, um, it's not a cure-all, but it is a tool. It's an amazing tool. And when I find the right medicine, um, I just want to be able to access it again. So what would I like to see changed? I would like to be able to buy Canbiotics, for instance, in New York State. Um, one of their cultivars, cereal milk, worked incredible for me. I want that again. But it's illegal for me to buy it in California and 
bring it home to New York. I mean, right. can you a little tiny bit? Yeah, you can. I mean, but I don't want to get in trouble. And that is a real thing. Um, and so I would love to see the, that ability. And I would love to see the states force dispensaries and force retailers to help guide patients. And that comes with a medicinal person on staff, somebody that understands conditions and drug to drug interactions and things that are really, really important to understand. Cannabis is a plant, but it's also a medicinal plant. And just like certain supplements, you can have reactions. So why not do everything we can to mitigate that and have a positive experience? An app like StrainPrint could really change how the states do business. You know, if customers could actually have access to those certificates of analysis and actually understand what works and why and understand what they're treating, I think we'd be so much further ahead than just this let's get high. You well, know? you know, I think that's part of the biggest problem, I believe, in, in the industry as a whole in the United States is that we do a lot of B2B education, trying to get different businesses to buy different strains, but we don't do a lot of B2C, meaning B business to consumer, where we're not educating the consumer and letting them understand. I mean, it's like the reason why I held up this book in the very beginning, which is the, you know, normal cannabis, you know, their uh, clinical applications for cannabis and cannabinoids uh, by normal. And there are several other really good books that are out there now where, you know, the patient has to be a little bit more, you know, aware and, and conscious of educating themselves. I mean, you know. I had to. That's exactly how I learned. If, I don't know if you can see behind me, but my entire bookshelves are stuffed with cannabis books and TBI books because uh, I needed answers. I needed to understand, you know, am, is this in my head? First of all, the TBI, is it just in my head? Like, what is wrong with me? Um and then once I learned it wasn't in my head, then I learned about cannabis, but I wanted to understand it in a way, high THC means nothing. Indica right. sativa hybrid means nothing. It's right. all about the terpenes and the flavonoids, the way the cannabis smells, the way the cannabis tastes. Those are where the medicinal properties really lie. I mean, yes, THC, yes, CBD, but we need to stop focusing on THC percentages as that being a better product because my best products are really in the 13 to 15% range and the, um, you know, high in limonene, high in pinene type terpenes. Right. Well, you know, I think what we, you know, a lot of people don't understand is that here in the United States, we have been responsible for trying to grow the CBD out of the plant back in the 60s. And then you know, as we've moved forward with more legalization across the nation, most people, like you say, got caught up in this whole thing of like the higher the number of THC, the better, where, where no one's really done an experiment to figure out whether or not that high number of THC really has any effect whatsoever. And it may not. I mean, you, each individual is individual and your ability to absorb THC is only absorbed through the CB1 connectors in your brain. And you know, you can only absorb but so much. So I don't care if you have 40% THC, you know, you're probably only absorbing about 13% of that at any given time. So, you know, I, I think that we, we will, as we continue to do more and more research, we're going to find out that, you know, back the original 
doctors and scientists that discovered THC, CBD, the, the endocannabinoid system, they recognized back then that cannabis worked in this thing that they called the entourage effect. And that entourage effect was all the cannabinoids working together to elicit the response that one needs. And as we mess with the plant, try to figure out, and you were very spot on when you say, you know, sativa indica means nothing anymore. As much as people think that it does, it really doesn't. Uh, because the, we are, we have hybridized this plant so much in the last five years that I don't know if there's really a true sativa left anymore or a true indica. Yeah, maybe the shapes of the leaves look like they could be, but there's so much going on in the underlying, you know, uh, properties of the terpenes and the, the flavonoids that, you know, it's all kind of crossed. And so we really do need to do a lot more research into like we have done for the last 40 years on terpenes when we look at terpenes in cauliflower look at terpene in broccoli and in spinach and in mangoes we know terpenes exist that's what gives plants their smell odor and also some of their protective mechanisms in plants so you're right i mean i think that the 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 from an education standpoint it, it's not enough for us to just educate the business about what they want to buy and put in their shelves. We need to educate the business about what's on their shelves that can help the patient. 100%, 100%. Absolutely. And that's now, again, let's go, let's talk a little bit about your, your, what are you doing? You said you're not really doing legislative advocacy, but you are working with patient advocacy. How are you doing that? So I'm a frequent uh, guest speaker and um, video person now because of COVID um, on a lot of different organizations that just want to hear my story and want to be able to make a change as well. I feel like I'm almost training a little soldier group of armies, you know, individually trying to educate them. So then they teach their friends and create a movement of education from a patient perspective. I went from being a, you know, provider to a patient to now an advocate, educating the users and the patients about cannabis and how to find what works for them, how to do the pot, basically, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, is sort of my mission. And I'm looking at developing products specifically for traumatic brain injury based on data that's been collected from Israel, from um, many other countries that actually Canada being one primarily, mm -hmm. Um, Canada and Israel might mainly have done tons of research. Um, I know a lot of people in the community and I would like to develop my own products that actually can help people with brain injury and the three conditions that I suffer from the most, the chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and brain fog. So that can also carry into patients that aren't just TBI survivors. It could be any of those people that have those types of symptoms. Sure. Sure. What else would you love to would you like to add anything else? Just let's all talk about it and remove the stigma. Come out of the cannabis closet if you're in it and help make a difference and be the change. Don't just yeah, talk it, about it. Do actions. I think you're absolutely right. You know, so many people think that, you know, because laws have passed in the last couple of years that everything is going to go okay, but it's not okay. We've seen pushback in several states that have, have heard from the will of the people to make cannabis available in several states. There are people trying to push back against the will of the people. And, you know, we're going to have probably three to five states vote in cannabis 
you know, initiatives in the next election, then you'll see that there'll be pushback there also only because of this, you know, dying breed of dinosaurs who still think that cannabis is a gateway drug, which is as stupid as anybody could be, but that's people who don't want to understand science. And we look at us as a society right now, which is anti-science, which is crazy. So, you know, I applaud you for what you're doing and I hope that you keep it up. You know, I want you to keep working. You always have a home back here. It lets me blow my top. If you want to share again, and I think the more and more people get to hear from you, the more and more they'll understand that there's nothing wrong with another plant-based medicine. 100%. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Nikki, Lolly, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. I wish you well. Stay safe. Hope your family stays safe. And, um, you know, I hope that, you know, you can continue to battle, you know, this illness that affects you in a, in a very effective way, in an efficacious way like you are right now with cannabis. Thanks so much, Montel. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing you again sometime. And I want to make sure that you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.